Good afternoon. My name is Cindy Brown, and I'm the Director of Education Policy here at the Center for American Progress. And we are so pleased to have such a great audience today for our discussion of expanded learning time in our nation's public schools. It's really great to see a crowd like this interested in that, this topic, which is very important to us. Today we're releasing two reports. Uh, one entitled Expanded Learning Time in Action, Initiatives in High Poverty and High Minority Schools and Districts, and the second one, Taking Stock of the Fiscal Costs of Expanding Learning Time. We undertook both these uh, papers with the support from the Broad Foundation, and two of our three authors are here to discuss these reports with you, Elena Rocha and Marguerite Rosa. We are also pleased to have Carmel Martin with us, General Counsel and Education Advisor to Senator Edward Kennedy. She has some important news for us about congressional support for expanded learning time and the interest of the Senator. Um, we also um, get to hear from Gretchen Buter, the principal of Grove Patterson Academy, a very successful traditional public school in Toledo, Ohio that has had a, long, a longer school day for eight years. As many of you know, the Center for American Progress has been promoting the expansion of learning time in high poverty and, low and or low performing schools for about three years. More time on task was a major recommendation of our 2005 Education Task Force report, Getting Smarter and Becoming Fairer, a Progressive Education Agenda for a Stronger Nation. We firmly believe that the learning of disadvantaged youngsters needs to be accelerated so that those who are behind have the opportunity to catch up and also have the chance to experience the wide variety of enrichment experiences that more advantaged students often get both inside and outside of school. Music and art and science clubs and service programs, sports programs, a whole variety of things. Much of our activity to promote adoption of expanded learning time programs we undertake in partnership with Massachusetts 2020 and an important new organization, the National Center on Time and Learning. Together with these partners, we have carefully crafted a definition of what solid expanded learning time programs look like. They are aimed at high poverty, underperforming schools, and they lengthen the school day, school week, or school year for all students in a given school by at least 30%, the equivalent of roughly two hours per day or 360 hours per year. To be effective, the concept of expanded learning requires the complete redesign of a school's educational program in a way that combines academics with enrichment for a well-rounded student experience and that supports teachers by giving them more time for planning, training, and professional development. Elena Rocha will discuss some of the core design principles and our findings about them when she speaks in a few moments. But enough from me. Um, let's hear from our expert panelists. I'm going to briefly introduce each of them. After we hear from them, I, I may ask them a few questions. We will then open up questioning to the audience. 
Alana Rocha, who you'll hear from first, was my colleague here at the center as senior education analyst for almost four years, but she, she was actually here five years and has been here, was here since the center opened its doors. Um, she's decided to venture into the world of consulting, but we miss her, but we plan to uh, keep working with her from her perch, as her new perch as an independent consultant. Marguerite Rosa is a research associate professor at the Center on Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington in Seattle, and we are pleased to have a strong partnership with her and several of her colleagues. Just last month, she was here for our all-day conference on the Title I comparability provision, so we're glad we, we dragged her back across country a second time in a month. She's also co-authored for us the paper with Karen Hawley-Miles on the financing of expanded learning time. She and Karen are leading experts on school district financing, and believe me, few such experts actually exist. Gretchen Buter is the principal of Grove Patterson Elementary School in Toledo, Ohio, where she's been an educator for almost 38 years. We appreciate her willingness to share the story of her school. And as I said, Carmel Martin is general counsel and chief education advisor to Senator Kennedy for the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. She is also an alumna of the center and, and remains a close colleague, and we always enjoy welcoming her back to the center. So with all that, we'll start with Elena. Thank you, Cindy. Good afternoon. It's great to be back at the center to discuss this new report, Expanded Learning Time in Action, Initiatives in High Poverty and High Minority Schools. I um, would like to start um, and focus my remarks on the findings presented in the report and then address some of the report's conclusions that should be taken into consideration as the ELT movement progresses. Um, the work for this report began almost three years ago and was driven by the need to provide additional evidence of the use of expanded learning time. Uh, many advocates, policymakers, and researchers are familiar with the successful KIPP schools and a handful of other charter schools that expand learning time or are also familiar with the Massachusetts ELT initiative. But as ELT has gained traction, there has been an increasing need to broaden what we know about implemented ELT initiatives. So to provide a little bit of context, I approach this work by asking three questions. Are high poverty and high minority schools uh, and districts rethinking the school calendar? If so, are they adding learning time to the calendar in a significant way? And are they using learning time differently? And to answer these questions, I first identified 300 current initiatives across 30 states implemented between 1991 and 2007. And these 300 initiatives are, are included in the report's tables. The initiatives were selected for this report based on five criteria. Schools with a student population that's at least 50% low income. Schools with a minority student population in excess of 50%. A combination of traditional public schools and charter schools a mixture of elementary, middle, and high schools, and school districts that have lengthened learning time for multiple schools and their districts. And I should also add that um, the initiatives that I looked at were, were free and were not offered on any type of a fee basis. Um, in addition to identifying the 300 initiatives, the report also includes 17 profiles of school and district efforts, including Gretchen's Grove Patterson, which she'll talk about um, shortly. So to the findings, are schools adding learning time? And the simple answer is yes. Charter schools in particular are expanding learning time in a significant way and are leaders in this effort. 
Many add at least one and a half hours to the school day and even several days to the school year, and in doing so, easily meet the center's definition of expanded learning time. In fact, many of these charter schools actually go well beyond the 30%. Traditional public schools also lengthen learning time, but to varying degrees. My research turned up um, a number of schools that actually added 30 minutes to the school day, which is an equivalent of about 10% more time. Um, identifying schools that add closer to 30% more time was much more difficult, um, something that I attribute to um, charter schools and their added flexibility and autonomy, which makes it easier for them um, or better situates them to implement um, innovative strategies like expanded learning time. School districts are also adding time to the school calendar, but often to a lesser extent than both charter and traditional public schools. Many add one hour to the school day or 20 days to the school year, and this equates to an increase of learning time of about 15%. Um, it's hard to explain why this is so without doing more in-depth case studies of these districts, but capacity is a likely explanation. Districts may lack the knowledge, the resources, the staff, or the political will to implement such an innovative strategy. In addition, it's seemingly difficult for districts to scale a district-wide initiative based on a school-level model. And I say that because few districts have actually implemented ELT across multiple schools, um, and many that have have a few years of experience under their belt. So districts largely lack proven long-term models of expanded learning time implementation. And just a little note about who is expanding learning time. Um, the majority of ELT initiatives that I've identified in this report expand time for the elementary and middle school grades. So significantly fewer um, schools have ELT at the high school level. Um, of the school-based efforts identified um, that add time for high schools, all of them are charter schools except for two. And these charter schools also serve uh, middle school students and sometimes elementary school students. None of the district-based initiatives that I looked at expand time for high school students. Rather, they focus on the earlier grades. So how is this time added to the school calendar? Uh, schools and districts add time to the calendar in very different ways, as Cindy mentioned, by either lengthening the school day, the school week, the school year, or a combination of all of these. Charter schools largely expand both the school day and the school year. Traditional public schools use a variety of models, including what I have referred to as partial ELT. Now, partial ELT is the expansion of time for particular grades or student populations. And although partial ELT does not meet the whole school definition that Cindy uh, discussed earlier, I felt that it was important to acknowledge that the schools that um, note and take notice that the six and a half hour school day, 180 day school year, is not enough time to give students what they need. So I have included some partial expanded learning time programs in this report. Um, these programs are all intentional, well-planned, and student-focused, and are often implemented without additional funds and often despite constrained district budgets. So there's a lot to learn from these partial ELT programs. Um, districts add time using a mix of designs. I found 47 schools in two districts that expand both the school day and the school year. 32 schools in three districts expand only the school year and 29 schools in two districts plus the state of Massachusetts expand just the school day. But is the time being used differently? 
I would say yes. There's great diversity in the ways in which schools are using this extra time, with designs varying in focus, content, and structure, <laughs> which I believe demonstrates that schools are tailoring their programs to meet the needs of their students. All of the schools identified in the report expand academic learning time. Most of them also use the added time for enrichment opportunities, and some of them even place an equal emphasis on character deve development, leadership, service, and community development. I found that some of the schools are organized around a particular theme or set of skills like language and international studies, the arts or technology. Others focus on college preparation, incorporate workforce training um, or employment opportunities into the educational program, or provide significant mentoring opportunities to students. Many schools use the added time to dig deeper into subject areas to master standards. So for instance, some of them um, have added 90-minute learning blocks in reading and math, whereas other schools will add 45 minutes to each of the core content classes. Um, other schools use the extra time to actually expand the curriculum. So I found that there are a number of schools that make sure that all of their students are taking a foreign language. Several schools also provide online learning opportunities in subjects that might not traditionally be taught. Um, during the, the school day, um, and there were a couple of schools that actually made sure that there were field studies, special projects, and community action days incorporated into the school calendar. So what do we know today? Do we know more today than we did before? I, I would say that um, the 17 profiles in the report demonstrate that there are multiple stakeholders um, that are indeed reconsidering the quantity and use of traditional school time. Whether these efforts were a reaction to poor student uh, performance, wide achievement gaps, NCLB, parental or community discontent, or global demands for 21st century um, skills, I've concluded that schools and districts are meaningfully experimenting with the expansion of learning time. Um, with the last few minutes that I've got, um, I actually want to talk about just a handful of the 12 conclusions that you'll find at the end of the report. The first is that there's a lack of a common definition of expanded learning time and what it means at the school and district levels. Some schools think that it's an after-school program, um, that it's tutoring and homework assistance, or that it's full-day kindergarten. So without having a common um, definition of expanded learning time, it's very difficult to identify schools that have what we're calling expanded learning time um, and to decipher whether or not what they are advertising is really ELT. Many expanded learning time efforts are also new. So as with um, many new reform strategies, it often takes years before the effect can be measured or attributed in part or whole to a particular reform strategy. As such, ELT schools might not be able to show school or student improvement based on AYP or school assessment solely. So there needs to be analysis of student achievement data over multiple years and the tracking of student growth over time and that may help um, more schools demonstrate that there are um, improvements in student achievement that can be attributed to more learning time. Um, the third conclusion is that multiple evaluations of expanded learning time have not been conducted. And this is not to say that there aren't reports out there, because there are. But there is a lack of rigorous longitudinal research-based, scientifically-based research um, that makes it difficult to draw correlations between more learning time and academic achievement. Um, and as many have pointed out, expanded learning time also includes the implementation of several other reforms, which also makes it much more difficult to isolate the effects of more time on student achievement. 
Um, the fourth conclusion I'd like to discuss is that expanded learning time does not have to be legislated. As evidenced in this report, schools and districts with strong leadership can and do take it upon themselves to design and implement initiatives. However, the passage of legislation would facilitate high-quality expanded learning time programs and make things much easier from a financial planning, implementation, and evaluation perspectives. Um, and the last conclusion is that um, teacher burnout is a legitimate concern in expanded learning time schools. As with most professional jobs, stretching employees too thin can affect productivity, quality of work, and attitude. However, providing staff with the necessary and appropriate supports, setting and clearly communicating goals and expectations, and sharing leadership among personnel can help to alleviate the risk of burnout in ELT schools. And finally, I think that what we see when we look at expanded learning time initiatives represents the reality of education in America today. Um, the existing school calendar, which is six and a half hours long and 180 days long, is insufficient for 21st century learning. Schools, students, and districts do want to excel. School improvement strategies are increasingly becoming bolder and more comprehensive. School districts are embracing new and school-wide reform strategies. And finally, ELT is gaining momentum across the U.S. Great, thank you. Marguerite. Um, thanks, so no, I had a, a different task here, not to tell you what um, is going on out there, but Karen Holly, Miles, and I did what we do best, which is assign dollar figures to things. So um, we, we went about the task of looking at expanding learning time and as a nuts and bolts exercise on uh, figuring out what the cost components are and what the um, what would the total price tag be if we added it all up and how does that compare with other reforms and and lastly and perhaps most importantly how can districts go about the business of covering the cost of expanded learning time if they want to do that for their schools so we started um, kind of at the at the bottom and looked at the first order decisions that we need to make um, when we're thinking about the design elements involved in expanded learning time. And so there's sort of two sets of decisions. You need to decide, obviously, how much time you're adding, which students participate, and how the time is used. And here, um, we didn't reinvent anything. We kind of went with the Center for American Progress recommendation, which is that we um, cost out the addition of 30% time. Um, which students participate? All the students in a school. In other words, an entire school is going to be converted to expanded learning time. May not be all the schools in a district, but it's all the kids in a particular school. Um, and then on the question of how is the time used, we again left that open. Um, it could be tutoring or small group instruction, extra time for core courses, longer class blocks, enrichment, professional development, those kinds of things. So the second order decisions are really where the rubber meets the road for us. Who or which adults cover the additional learning time each day? I mean, somebody's got to be there. How are they compensated? So that's where the, the biggest chunk of change is coming into play when we talk about expanding learning time. So um, here's how we thought about this task. Um, first of all, you can go with existing staff, which is the yellow. I'm not sure if the colors are coming out perfectly. Yeah. On the one on the left, yeah. And then the right is supposed to be bluish, or you could go with new staff. So if we go to the left kind of first and we talk about existing staff, um, you, we could go with teachers, um, non-teaching certificated staff, which are like teacher type people, but they tend to be literacy specialists or whatever 
other kind of uh, certificated specialists that work in the school building, or we could go with paraprofessionals. Now, if we, if we thought about those three groups of people who already work in schools, we can cover their time either by increasing their salary, using stipends, or reallocating time. In other words, um, and the, you don't come in at, at 8 o'clock every morning. Now you come in at 10, but you stay till 5 o'clock or whatever in the afternoon. So take their time and reallocate it or redirect some of their in-school time to something that would have before been considered after school. So we, we have all these different options here. And um, then we also go to the new staff category. And same kind of thing. We could hire new certificated staff, and um, we could hire uh, new paraprofessionals, or we can go with either people on contracts, or we can do what's being done a lot in places is leverage partnerships in the community. So existing services that we can get from uh, museums and community centers and all that kind of stuff to provide extra services that are uh, what would have been outside the regular school day. So um, now what we did was we went into federal databases and got national averages for mid and large size districts on um, salaries, the different terms of uh, teacher contracts, the, and the average spending per pupil at the school level. So bear in mind, this is not average spending per, dis, you know, per pupil for the district, but at the school level. So we've taken out transportation and some other things. Um, and then we went and costed out these different options on that 30% time that we talked about. And here's what we found. So uh, first of all, the first two bars talk about using uh, increasing the salaries. The second two bars are using stipends. So the longer bars, if we go with certificated staff, is the shorter bar for paraprofessionals because they're um, lower salaried than certificated staff. And so the first two bars and the second two bars are, are fairly comparable, and it looks fairly economical to go that route versus these two bigger bars down at the bottom are to go out and hire new people and bring them in, give them a, you know, under a labor contract, new benefits and the whole thing and have new staff that work, um, that cover that amount of time. So, and that makes sense. I mean, we think of, of uh, when we go, we go with stipends, their stipends are based um, on the salaries, but um, stipends or, or adding salaries for the top two sets of bars would be less expensive than new staff because you're not going to add a whole lot more benefits and some other things like that. Now, um, I, what I want to do is direct your attention to, which I don't know if you can see this or not because I can't see from this angle, but there's something called reallocated time of existing staff. And obviously, if we're going to take people who used to work in the morning and make them work later in the afternoon, there's not actual, a, a new dollar cost that the district would have to pay. But there are opportunity costs to that. So if you used to have paraprofessionals working in the classrooms and you say you're not working in the classroom anymore now you're going to work you know after school then that classroom that operated from 9 to 10 in the morning that, that now no longer has a paraprofessional in there has a cost to it right um, and we we could question what that real opportunity cost is and but it's something to think about there but it, it's a it's a great way to think about um, staffing the afternoon without adding new dollars uh, and lastly the bottom one which is private pr providers that's negotiable, and um, a lot of districts are thinking about that um, as leveraging whatever you have in the community. You can negotiate it, and, and what they're finding is that you can get really good rates for um, the services that these private providers are providing. And what that allows you to do 
sometimes is redirect time from your other staff. So let me explain how this might work in a high school. And there's not a lot of this going on at the high school level, but this is how it could work. High schools, one of the most expensive parts of high schools is offering electives. So photography, ceramics, some of the sports that are offered. These are really expensive classes. Typically, and there's another report that I have coming out, double the cost of a math class. So we could talk about it on a whole other meeting, but <laughs> if, you, if you think, well, there are a lot of resources in the community and maybe I can give kids access to photography and ceramics in this expanded learning time, that would allow us to free up teacher time and class, regular school time to do um, more, longer math classes, which would redirect funds back into math. So um, anyway, so that, what you can see there is a provi private providers are making a shift. Right. You should know that that's not, the two black lines there aren't showing up. Aren't showing up. So yeah. what the black lines say, where there are no bars, the top one says no cost, but there are opportunity costs. And down under private providers, it says negotiable. So, um, so uh, then anyway, the all told then, what's the price tag we're thinking about here? Um, given that most districts aren't going to go with hiring a whole new set of staff, and what they're probably going to do is some combination of the above costs, what we're thinking about is somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 to 16% additional spending on top of your school budget. Now, that's an important thing to note here. 30% more time is not 30% more spending. It's half of that. 30% more time is between 6 and 16% more increased spending. So um, compared to a lot of reforms, that's sort of a good deal. Um, so now what I want to talk about now is how do you find that 6 to 16% to make that work? Um, well, if you happen to be flush with funds, <laughs> bring on the new funds. 6 to 16% is about $280 to $720 per pupil for the average school. So, um, and just in case you're not flush with new funds, let's talk about, re I, th I thought we spent more of our time talking about reallocating existing funds. Okay, so the uh, number one uh, way you can sort of think about this is in terms of redirecting targeted funds. So one of the premises of the expanding learning time is to do this for high needs populations. Take schools where they're largely um, poor or other needs and then you get a lot of funds from the federal government in the form of Title I and if you are familiar with the Title I numbers often they exceed that 720 that I have per pupil in that top line. So there are funds there in the form of Title I but it's a trade-off. Title I is being spent on some other things and you got to decide whether or not you think um, Title I would be better spent in expanding learning time. Um, a lot of states now are targeting funds also for high needs populations and uh, low performing populations. So there may be, a lot of states have funds already in their budgets that you could think about using this way. Um, then the other, thing, the other thing to think about is shifting resources from other investments. So we spend a lot of money on things during the school day besides just sort of bare bones. And one of those is class size reduction. Uh, we have a lot of specialists, reading specialists, literacy coaches, um, uh, all those kinds of things. And then we have a lot of elective offerings, which I just talked about a minute ago. And you could take funds that are, are in those investments and put them instead into expanded learning time. So um, if you were to raise class size by three students, that would free up about 8% of a school's funds. So again, it's a trade-off. What's the right thing to do for each particular school given the mix of resources that are there and the needs that they have? So um, the next one is to reallocate funds among schools within a district. This is 
clearly not a popular strategy for the schools that would be losing funds. But um, that said, there are a lot of districts that have implemented something called weighted student formula. And it's basically a student-based allocation method that has um, made for more fair and more flexible allocations among schools. So when you go the student-based allocation route, you may find that the district's been overfunding the um, wealthier schools. And when you straighten out the funds, that frees up money for the high-need schools, which could be used to contribute to your expanded learning time. Um, now, if we go that route, any of these routes really, especially on reallocating time, but also on using new funds, there are going to be implications for teacher contracts. So it's not, there's not a simple reform that happens overnight. You've got to think about the work rules that are already embedded there and, and address those proactively. And also, the last thing that shouldn't go unmentioned is the need, going to be the need to rethink our investments in professional and program development. Uh, right now, we spend a lot of money on professional development, and we may need to spend that money differently if we're going to ask teachers to do something very different with the school day. And I think I'll stop there. That's great. Now we're going to hear from a real school that's doing it. <laughs> okay. Well, it's all right. I can just do that. I'm just learning how to do it here, so I was like... <laughs> we can move it. First of all, I want to tell you how um, proud I am and honored to be here. And I thank you for allowing me to bring Grove Patterson Academy into your lives today. So I guess we'll try this. It does work. Okay, that's me. Um, in the beginning, uh, and this is not a long story, but we um, at Grove Patterson Academy, we came to life because the administration, the teachers' unions and administrative unions, needed a way to try and fight the competitors out there. We needed to make ourselves more marketable for the students of tomorrow and offer more. We had Edison Project moving into Toledo and other uh, chartered schools, and so they created Grove Patterson Academy. They worked collaboratively together, and all of the unions agreed and put us together. All of the teachers had talked about if they wanted to go to a school with a longer workday and different programs and formats, and they were interviewed to go there. I, too, was interviewed and chosen to go to Grove Patterson Academy. We created a lot of history with that kind of a program. We made a lot of differences. We were different by design. Grove Patterson Academy has many different uh, opportunities and nuances. But of course, our longer school day is one of the biggest. We are an eight to four school day. Breakfast begins at 7.45. My last bus, which I think is 17, leaves by 4.15 to 4.20. Some of our children get on the buses at 6.40 in the morning to come to school. Many of the parents also drive their children and drop them off and oftentimes pick them up as well. We also uh, are housed in a building with high schoolers right now, and so they too are on the same buses. So we have a gamut of our building is K-8, to and we also ride the bus with the high school students as well. Our day, because it's longer, if you break it down into minutes, um, is 105 minutes longer than the standard school day, or 1.75 hours. You have the hours per week that we have teacher instruction time. And the student interaction with uh, the teachers over that amount of time, five days longer beforehand. Actually, it's six now. And then we have six days toward the end of the year when the rest of TPS closes, we are still in school. At that time, we're also doing much of our professional development for our staff as whole day professional development. Um, since we had begun our building, I think it was our fourth or fifth year, fifth year, 
this is uh, we're going into our tenth year now, and uh, the rest of Toledo Public had extended their day now by I think it was uh, thirty minutes. So they're getting closer, and they do see the need for longer time and longer day on task. Um, with that time involved, we do put in not just 44 days additionally because of the time, but 49 days a year based upon all the time. So that's really another 49 days of school and instruction and time on task based upon those extra minutes. You ask, what do we do? It's not just do we extend the day, but how do we use it, and do we use it fruitfully? Well, we have foreign language. That was kind of our magnet draw. We, we teach Spanish, and we teach German. If you come into our building from K to 8, you'll either come in K to 8 and have Spanish every year, or K to 8 and have German every year. Along with that, we have the Success for All Reading Program, which is 90 minutes lockdown, and by that I mean lockdown. Uh, we begin after announcements at 825, and it is non-interrupted reading time. We put music on, the children leave their classes, go to their reading groups, and at 950 they return to the music and have fulfilled their full reading block and language arts. Now that's not to say that there aren't other opportunities throughout the day with social studies and science and math as well, since much of the math testing has story problems in it. So a lot of that teaching continues beyond that time. Math, we have a specialist, and so not only do they have math in their classroom, but they go to a specialist two hours per week. We also have the regular arts. We have phys ed time, we have art, and we have music. That time is wonderfully spent for the students, but it's also allowing the teachers to collaborate at their grade level because they loop. Therefore, they keep their classroom two years with the same teacher, and that affords them less uh, learning where their students are, where the strengths and weaknesses are, and also helps over the summer that you don't have to get to spend as much time knowing you can just pick up basically where you left off. Lunch, 45 minutes a day lunch program, and uh, we try to tie recess into that as well. The use of computer time, we try to accommodate our, our one hour increments per week, and uh, what we do is that may be from that 3.15 to 3.45 period, or 3.30 to uh, 4 o'clock, depending however we can rearrange the schedule and fit people in. We have a lab right now that we have access to, but all of our uh, classrooms also have um, the TechNet program that was uh, started in the state of Ohio where they have five computers in each classroom. When we first opened Grove Patterson Academy, we also had a program through a grant that we had written, and we gave laptops to every student from um, fourth grade on. We were meant to be a K-6 to building. Our parents, of course, fought very hard to extend our building to a K-8, to and we added 7th and 8th. Uh, we also have one to three hours per week, which is allotted for our teachers and required. Um, so after school, usually on Monday and Tuesday, we'll break that into an hour and a half. Sometimes on Monday we'll do a whole three hours after that and leave at 7. But that is for professional development time. Many of those professional development times we try to make without cost. We have trained the trainers and our, our same teachers will come in and present programs. We will also get speakers in or we'll go to conferencing uh, or other programs. And we also allow time for collaboration. Our teachers must get together, whether it's during their common planning time during the week, during the day, or when we meet at night. And then we also all meet again back together to make sure that we are working from kindergarten straight up to eighth grade on the standards, the indicators, and buying that time into it. Uh, this does make for a very nice collaborative environment and certainly helps us with results. 
for the last three to five years, we've been in a rating, rating of effective. Actually, we were effective last year. We had a little anomaly there. We're effective this year. We missed excellence, I believe, by two-tenths of a percent. And uh, we have quite a few indicators, I believe 14 this year. And we've met AYP. And there are also goals that we have to get. And we're also going to look at value added this year to see how well we've done with that. That being the case, when you take a school that is totally non-districted, our children come from all over the entire city of Toledo. They come from the uh, poor districts, the middle class, the upper districts. Many students get into our building that we don't know who may be in another district. Uh, that, of course, brings us more money. Uh, our first two years, I believe, we drew almost $2 million by the number of students who came to us that were from other districts because you do get to have other money that brings them in. So, you know, looking at the financial piece. But again, um, it's, it's the way of life. Our children learn to be living daily, eight hours a day, sometimes longer than they see their own families, with children who are of different religious background, color, uh, country, and they know how to be with each other. Before you know it, they're going home to different homes with each other and visiting in different cultures and learning to know each other, preparing our students <clears throat> far better for the world as it is. So not as, only is it a longer day, but it's an adhesive kind of day. It brings everyone together as a family. Uh, we do often get many of the family members into the school, so oftentimes we'll have four and five in the school from one family. Um, our special ed students also have achieved quite highly. They've reached higher expectations than we've had for them on their IEPs, which means they're definitely working higher than their expectations to accommodate that. We no longer do any of the alternate assessments because of that. We, we wish to try to give our students every chance possible. Uh, we do tutor the students and we work with them. But the fact that everyone has uh, risen to this level of wanting to be there, there's no other thought there but the children and preparing them for the world tomorrow. And we do believe, after all this time, because we're there longer, we can give them everything we need to give them. Uh, our parents also sign a parent agreement to be there, therefore they uh, volunteer 10 hours per family per year. And so they are very active in the program. They're there volunteering in lunch, sometimes in the classroom. They see what goes on in the building, they see the environment and the tenor of it, and they obviously like what they see because we have over 500 applicants for next year. Thank you. She doesn't yet. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint, so you're just going to have to listen to me. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming today, and thanks to Cindy and John for their leadership on this issue. We've worked in the Kennedy office very closely with CAP and with Mass 2020 and the National Center on Time and Learning on this and other edu important education issues. Just want to take a minute to thank Elena and uh, Marguerite for their good work on their papers and on behalf of Senator Kennedy, thank Gretchen for her good work with her children every day. Um, there is a lot of interest in this issue on Capitol Hill. I think that is driven largely by a very intense desire to find a silver bullet in education reform. Um, politicians very desperately want to know that there's a way that we can just identify the way to fix things and um, they can support that and then everything will be okay. I think our work on this issue um, affirmed by Elena's paper is that uh, extended learning time is not a silver bullet. 
um, but rather a, um, a piece of a much larger comprehensive school reform um, initiative. But I think the thing that the reason it's still very attractive from a policy and political standpoint is because it's a initiative that you get a lot of bang for your buck. And and the reason that I say that is I feel that um, it it helps. Uh, there's there's a consensus about various reforms that need to happen, particularly in high poverty schools, for them to be able to help all children to reach high standards, which there's a consensus should be our goal. Um, and I think each of those initiatives require um, a, an extended learning time initiative. And um, I would just say, mention four of them that are very important to Senator Kennedy. And those include um, essentially moving from an industrial model of education where we have one teacher standing up in front of 30 um, students lecturing them to more of an information age model of instruction where we have collaboration and team teaching, instructional leaders helping teachers to constantly improve their practice on a daily basis, on-site, ongoing professional development, um, and um, instructing them in a way that's um, children in a way that's hands-on and uses enrichment activities to really help make school relevant to kids. So I think all to move to that model, we really do, uh, again, particularly in high-poverty neighborhoods, need to start thinking about time and how we're using the time that we have. Um, I think it's also important because it facilitates uh, additional time on task for those who are struggling in No Child Left Behind. We had the concept of supplemental services. The results of that have been mixed at best. I think extended learning offers us an alternative to that that could have an even more powerful impact, not just on how um, individual students who are falling behind uh, can catch up, but also really changing the entire school and helping all students to reach even higher. Um, I also think extended learning can have a powerful impact in implementing many of the initiatives that are needed to try to get at, get at the dropout crisis, which is probably one of Senator Kennedy's uh, highest priorities as we move forward with education reform is to do something about making sure that more children graduate and graduate ready for success. And I think a lot of the reforms that are needed there require, again, for us to rethink how we structure the school day. And finally, another important uh, initiative for Senator Kennedy is to get at issues of character and leadership and civic education. And we've seen in Massachusetts how extended learning opportunities can really help bring that into the school and help that not be something that's ignored and can be a high priority for schools. So I think for those reasons, it, there's um, powerful um, basis for supporting extended learning opportunities from a policy standpoint. I think from a political standpoint, there's also um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of things that extended learning opportunities addresses. Um, some of the largest criticisms that we get of No Child Left Behind are things that there's too much teaching to the test, we're narrowing the curriculum too much, we're imposing a one-size-fits-all reform model on schools that are very different and very diverse. And I feel that, um, again, Elena's paper, I think, brings this home, that extended learning opportunities can really help us address those concerns in a very powerful way by making, so you can have 90 uninterrupted minutes on reading if that's what your kids need, but you still have time for math but, um, and history, but more importantly, things like art and music. Um, 
in terms of teaching to the test, I think, again, it helps give teachers more breathing room to make sure that they can help their children uh, perform well on tests but go beyond that and teach them higher order thinking skills and, and, you know, go beyond what a standardized test assesses. And, and again, one size fits all because it gives schools more flexibility to do unique programs, to bring in community-based organizations, to provide enrichment to what kids are doing on a daily basis. I think it helps um, schools develop improvement plans that can be individualized to their population, to their students. So for all these reasons, we're finding that uh, prominent members of the Congress are really taking up this concept and becoming champions of it. I work for one of them. Senator Kennedy um, has made this a priority for, for his um, initiatives going into reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. We've worked on a bipartisan basis with Senator Burr on some legislation that relates to national service that would bring AmeriCorps volunteers into schools, try to deal with the cost implications of expanded learning opportunities by having AmeriCorps volunteers come in and design and help implement the programs in conjunction with the teachers and the other professionals in the school. Um, we are also planning to introduce this week a new bill. Um, Senator Kennedy will be introducing a new bill called the TIME Act, uh, which will provide f pilot funding to states that developed expanded learning opportunity initiatives similar to the one we've seen in Massachusetts. It's modeled on the Massachusetts program, and it will be competitive grants to states to then turn around and provide to school local schools to, to implement expanded learning opportunity programs. It um, has a few things that will be required pieces of that. That initiative will include working with com community-based organizations. There'll uh, be uh, preference giving t given to schools and districts that are working with community-based organizations. And also, like in the Massachusetts model, um, a preference for those that work collaboratively with teachers, as they did in Toledo, to develop the initiative. And again, um, it would need, like the, um, the CAP definition, the objective is to add at least 30% more time to the day or week or year. Um, and also to have a comprehensive reform, so not just extending, expanding, doing, spending more time doing what you're doing now, but really taking a look at what you're doing now and re-examining it. Um, so we do plan to introduce that today, the, uh, this week, probably won't be today. Uh, we also have big supporters of expanded learning opportunities in Senator Obama, who's introduced a bill that actually got enacted as part of the Competes Act related to expanding um, the school year into summer in high-poverty areas. And again, I mentioned that we're working with Senator Burr on our T-Fellows bill. Um, Senator Sanders has been a big champion of this issue as well. And Congressman Payne in the House has been uh, a big champion. So there's a lot of interest in this issue. Um, and so I think it's going to be a big part of our debate moving forward in terms of school reform. I, um, Cindy asked that I give my reactions to the papers that we read, so I just will conclude with a few of those. I, I think something that really came out in terms of reading Elena's paper is that it's not just about adding more time, but looking at how we use time. So in and of itself, um, just adding time is not really the objective, but really trying to maximize what we're doing during the school day. And having this initiative in a school can really help bring um, the the momentum, but also the political will to to say, well, 
is the way we've been doing it for decades really the way that we should continue to do it? Um, I think the other thing that really came home to me in reading the papers is that it's not just that expanded learning opportunities is not is not the reform in itself. Um, I think it is the tool by which we execute other reforms. Um, again, just to, spending more time doing the same thing is not necessarily going to change outcomes for kids. It's using that expansion of time to to do things like enrichment activities and more time on task and problem areas. So I guess I would take issue, one thing I would take issue with in the paper is um, Gretchen's, uh, uh, sorry, Marguerite's suggestion of reallocating resources from things like, uh, with respect, um, <laughs> things like instructional leaders um, and class size reduction in order to implement ex expanded learning time. I'm not saying that there isn't any instance in any school in America where we're not using resources efficiently and shouldn't re you know, re-examine that and think how we can do that differently. But I think it would be tragic if a school implements expanded learning time and then cuts back on things like instructional leaders because I think the reason to implement expanded learning time is so that instructional leaders can have a greater impact in our school um, in terms of trying to provide that on-site, ongoing professional development, which is a, you know, another initiative that Senator Kennedy has called the TEACH Act with Congressman Miller. So I think those things need to work together. I think if we don't look at it holistically and just look at time without looking at how time can be used to leverage other types of reforms, then it's going to be a failed effort. Um, so I would just caution that, um, you know, I think it's a reform that deserves additional resources. Senator Kennedy is about to offer um, legislation to provide it, and um, it's something that we should, um, we should not shortchange in the budgeting process. Um, and I guess uh, in conclusion, the only other point that I would make is the importance of working in conjunction with community-based organizations, again, to leverage the, the, um, the resources, but also to, so it's not doing more of the same. I think people in communities will embrace extended learning time uh, in, in a much more rigorous way if they feel like it's not just additional time for teaching to the test, but really about bringing their child's education up to the next level. And with that. Thank you, Carmel. That's great to hear about um, the Time Act. Uh, interesting. Just putting it right out there as <laughs> it's bluntly what the subject is, and it's very exciting that that's going to be introduced later um, this week. Uh, I have just a couple of questions I want to ask folks, and uh, particularly around the financing. But before I ask my questions about that, I wanted to ask um, Gretchen. So you have 500 applicants. How many kids are in the school? 400. So you, do you use a lottery, or how do you? We have a lottery draw. They fill out applications, we place them by grade level. And so we have a lottery draw with that. And actually, we have closer to 575 right now, but we can only take 75 new students. And, and uh, it was very clear from your remarks that teachers spend quite a bit of time at your school. Now, what kind of financial, do they have a stipend? Is it built into their salary? What is the? What we do is it's um, one-sixth of the base salary uh, is what the extra time would be. So, for example, if they're there, the three hours that we put in a week, they would get like a 21 
uh, $21.25 per hour for those three hours. And then for every amount of time they do each day, it comes to like $43 that they get per day. So they take it by a different formula. That's a different timesheet that we fill out. And we also fill out timesheets for the um, amount of instructional planning time that they do. So it's on a different rate. Than, a different rate. And, and, and it's a much lower rate. But this was all worked out with beforehand, the and the union agreed to it, yes. Yes, you have. Um, so, uh, Marguerite, you heard in Carmel's comments. Of course, one thing I know Marguerite and I agree on it about uh, financing. The, basically, the way we fund schools in this country is pretty inequitable with high poverty schools on the short end of the stick, even if you are, are supposedly doing a per pupil uh, distribution of money, which we know, particularly in medium and large sized districts, is not the way funding is actually done. And we had a whole conference on that last week, so we won't divert too much into that. But if you fix some of those, that would make extra money available. Um, but I'm interested, Marguerite, in what you, uh, in, in any reaction you have to um, Carmel's comments, and also your general view about with the economy on um, going through a very rough time, if uh, what kind of effect do you think it's going to have on education spending in districts, and are, are they going to be spared some of the cuts? I mean, it's a it's a you you're very close to it because you do research on this every day. Um, I think that. Um, to be honest, that that we've we've spent more money on the things that we could get approved. It hasn't been that we've spent more money on the best things that we could do for kids. So we haven't gone through our extra spending over the years and said this is our best bet on student outcomes. It's the best bet for the money. It's the smart money. Let's put it in there. Instead, we've said, what can we? Can, what will pass a levy with with um, voters? what can get through the state legislature, what is likely to be an agreement that'll settle something with the labor union. So we haven't been strategic in aligning those investments with student outcomes. And I, I think as money gets tighter, um, there's going to be more of that. I mean, there has to be more of that. So um, districts are gonna have to make trade-offs. They're gonna have to decide, you know, do I want my money here or do I want my money there? A lot of districts in this country are, um, losing money and not because their funding is dropping because it's actually because their enrollment is dropping and um, when districts are going through um, enrollment declines which create fiscal declines they've got to make they've got to make decisions about trade-offs and and with all the pressure for student outcomes I think there's going to be a little bit uh, better alignment between what we spend our money on and what we can get for that in terms of student outcomes. I, I can't say that in every district that I've gone through that all the money is spent really well. I mean, I just I, I could just go on for about 2,000 hours on, on the different bureaucratic organizational habits that contribute to poor spending decisions. And one of the ones I just alluded to was this exorbitant price tag on high school electives. Um, and when we, don't, we don't all think that photography is the key to our economic future in this country and that a photography class should be three times the cost of a math class. So um, I think that there's a lot of places out there where we can really rethink the money and I think that there's going to be more of that and I think it's going to have a positive outcome for kids. Gosh, well, and, and you'll keep um, writing about it. Yeah. One thing that makes her job easier is that um, 
uh, or that she's able to do this work now is because budgets are so much more transparent than they were 20 and 30 years ago and 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 she's she and Karen Holly Miles and others are able to get down to the school level in analyzing budgets so Elena you I know one of the things you didn't get to talk about was the school partnerships that many of these schools enter into um, maybe you can elaborate on what they look like and are they mostly on a volunteer? Uh, uh, do the the um, community partners bring resources to the table with those partnerships, or are they reimbursed? How does that usually work? Um, in sort of all of the above, in various ways, um, there are some of the schools that are profiled that um, use community partnerships to provide services. Um, they also provide. Um, classrooms outside of the school so you can have a community partner that has their own building um, it might be a museum or a hospital or um, you know, a number of things um, a lot of the community partners also provide mentors to these students will actually designate an individual and pair up that individual with a particular student or a very small number of students to provide mentoring to help these students um, network and sort of gain additional social skills. Um, so there's, I mean, the partnerships just work in so many different ways um, from, you know, staffing to various types of resources, financial and otherwise. Um, so it's just a, a huge array of, of the use of partnerships, but they are a very, very significant and crucial component to expanded learning time initiatives. And my last question is for Carmel, and then I'll open it to the audience. So, Carmel, you're going to the Time Act's going to be introduced. Will there be hearings this year, or will you wait for next year? Um, I think we'll probably wait for next year. Yeah. Great. Okay, I'm going to open it to audience, but I want if there are any journalists, um, I want to give them the first crack at a, a question. Peggy Ochowski, I'm with the uh, Hispanic Outlook magazine on higher education. Um, I have two questions, actually. Um, I was interested with Gretchen. What, what, how large are your class sizes now? And, um, and what impact does this? I think that is one of the silver bullets is supposedly class size. So what impact could some of this have on, on that silver bullet class size? And what number are we talking about? And the other thing is, um, what is the union's reaction to... Um, to this, is it totally? Is their support totally based on higher compensation for their union members? Good questions. Um, our cap on our classrooms is twenty-two. That's our maximum, and that does seem to make a big difference on many of the things that we do with the programs. As far as the union, they were a very viable part of this suggestion and this initiative right from the very start. Um, I speak. You know, of Fran Lawrence, who is our, the president of the teachers union, was very heavily involved with this. We still speak. In fact, I'm going tomorrow with them to present in Oklahoma City for something else. But again, they are so strong into it's not the compensation for their teachers. It was putting together a new initiative to see if we could indeed combat the competition out there. And after they saw that we could indeed do this, um, I was in a committee to help we open three more schools with a bit either of a longer day or different initiatives uh, in Toledo Public. Are you talking about the No, no. You mean TTA? Our, our t oh, the local teachers union, the TFT, yes. Okay. Yes, thank you. Okay, up 
journalist? This one, yes. Debbie Villadero with Education Week, and I have two questions. One question is, is for Carmel, and that has to do with uh, the cost or the, the dollar figure in this bill that's being introduced, or how many states might win these grant awards? Our dollar figure is uh, we're going to start at $150 million and then ramp up to $300 million over the authorization period. We're looking at it as a pilot project, so the idea is not to give every district in America who wants to do ELT the ability to do that, but rather to seed these initiatives, and that's one of the reasons that we're making it a state-driven initiative. Um, the, uh, the concept is that states would come and match the resources that we'd be providing on the federal level so that we can get this um, seeded throughout the country and have people actually... Um, you know, trying different models that we could then um, study. There's a provision to study the initiative um, and see what works, what doesn't work, and help encourage other districts to, to take it up, encourage states to take it up as a state-based initiative. At full implementation, our estimate is that we could fund about 200,000 students in these types of programs, depending on the cost model. Um, in, in Massachusetts, the cost is somewhere about 1200 to 1400 per student, so on the, the high end of Marguerite's estimates. You had a second question? I do, yeah. This is in, in regard to the whole issue of, of separating out how much of any achievement gains you get may be due to other things going on at schools compared to time. And I wondered if you knew of any research efforts going on or whether you're studying this yourselves um, to, uh, to, get, to get a better handle on that issue. Well, I think that's why we define uh, expanded learning time the way we do. We, we believe it is one important tool uh, for improving outcomes uh, for disadvantaged kids. Uh, more time alone without changing practices in a school is not going to get you where you need to be. Um, you want to add to that? I, I don't know of any studies right now, but maybe Lee from the, center, the National Center on Time and Learning might have a different answer. I, I, just, I don't know of any you know, longitudinal studies um, going on right now. We think they should be done. Uh, John Bishop, do you have an answer to that question? He's a researcher. <laughs> Bishop Cornell. Um, first, there are two uh, studies underway that will provide start providing answers soon. One is the uh, ch charter school evaluation, and they're tracking the characteristics of the charter schools. And this is a particularly strong study because they're using the lotteried out kids. In a lottery case, that they're all applicants for the school as as the comparison group. So, you should be able to get something from that study. And then there's um, uh, just starting a KIPP evaluation. So that's a study of extended time plus all the other things that KIPP does. Um, but uh, what's already available is an evaluation of New York City charter schools. And uh, that study did some comparison of what were the traits of the charter schools that seem, seemed to have the more positive effects. And one of those traits was the extended time. Uh, it's the problem with teasing out all the details is since so many things can be different from one school to another, 
knowing which particular characteristic caused the change is difficult. And in most cases, these things are very correlated because the charter schools that have longer school year also have a longer school day. They tend to have a whole variety of other policy differences as well. So it's that package that seems to be uh, having a positive effect. And I, th I completely agree with Cindy's comment that it's not just the extended time that's doing it. Some of the things that Gretchen described about her school are very important, including the looping uh, and um, the fact that the collaboration and, and so forth. I, I want to throw a question at Gretchen. Are you having any difficulty retaining your teachers? And do you have a pool of teachers from outside your school that want to transfer in and, and get the jobs there? No trouble retaining our teachers. Uh, many of our teachers have been with us since the inception of Grove Patterson Academy. The first year, two did leave. Uh, they felt that um, they wanted our kindergarten. They did not want to teach the kindergarten the way we were teaching it. It was not going to be um, the old type kindergarten um, where they got more nap and snacks. It was a more rigorous kindergarten. Uh, they do have a nap, they do have recess, but they are also part of the Success for All Reading program and the math program and the foreign language. And they just felt that was not appropriate, so they left. But other than that, no, um, it's, it's not been a problem. Oh, no, they're new teachers from the district. Yeah. Right, I'm sorry, yes, we all, including myself, we all had to chuck our beliefs at the door, <laughs> the past beliefs. That's great. Other questions? Yes. I'm Nadine Mildice with the uh, Montgomery County Public Schools, and I have a real-life question about extended uh, learning time in high schools. And I think all of us are concerned about the dropout rate. But many times when a high school will try a model of extended learning time, our community members who are in the retail and service business will raise a hue and cry because it cuts into their low wage, minimum wage job uh, seeker pool. So how do we respond to that issue as educators? Yeah, it's a very, very tough issue. We, um, at the center, when we came out with our task force report, we advocated um, going to year-round schools and getting rid of summer vacation, and that's really a non-starter for the same kinds of reasons. But uh, yeah, good. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I think I can address that to some degree. Uh, where we're housed right now in a high school, while our other building is being rebuilt, there is the Toledo Technology Academy at the other end of the old high school. They are a high school. They are a longer day. They go from 7.30. They attend 7.30 to uh, 4, 3.45, um, so they ride the same bus with us. They are involved heavily with business and community corporations, and therefore many of those corporations help get those kids part-time jobs. They go and help out in the offices. They'll go and do many things because they're building, uh, they're with the math and sciences, so they're building uh, robots and they're working on math issues and so forth so um, some of them still hold jobs but they're all working with these businesses too right now 
It is much more difficult at the high school level. It just requires a more careful and more thoughtful design to figure out how to incorporate expanded learning time um, into the school calendar for high school grades. But it is, it's, it's being done. It just, we don't see it yeah, as an much. An important initiative has been apprenticeship programs, which, uh, you know, there was quite a bit of interest in in the um, early 90s. It's faded some, um, even... Um, uh, I think some of the career academies. If you, if if your learning is also tied in with um, a workplace, um, it, it's possible to compensate kids um, for the work they're doing a, as they are learning. That's actually a, a much more prevalent kind of learning experience in European countries that we haven't developed very well in this country. So, something for Montgomery County to think about. <laughs> Yes. Nate Daydell. Um, I have a question about the um, uses you're making of the extra time. Um, and I appreciate what Marguerite had said about um, new, you can't always do the best um, bang for the buck because of the political constraints in other programs. But I would think with time, when you open up some extra time, that you do have the flexibility to pick what's most useful. Now, from what I've heard and seen with KIPP, my understanding was their research showed that they were trying to teach kids more, um, I don't know what they call it, values, but trying to get them motivated, sort of the makeup for what they weren't getting at home, that upper-middle class, upper-class parents were prepared to motivate their kids. They had a model the kids could just... Uh, follow what their parents were doing. So Kip went in, we got to do it during the classroom, but we don't want to squeeze out math or science or English, whatever, so we need extra time, and that that was the motivation. So if they had extra time, those would be the kinds of things. I, mean, I remember reading, make eye contact, nod when, little things like that that parents would be teaching implicitly. Is there any research showing that, that, that you guys have seen that is important, that's a high priority for extra time. I, I mean, Gretchen, you mentioned it sounds like enrichment is as, is as important as anything like what Kip is doing. Enrichment's important because that fulfills the children. However, I can't imagine, and also having been a teacher for a number of years, that I would not have any of these classrooms, any amount of time, learning those particular skills keeping eye contact with my children, speaking to my children, teaching value systems. Those are things that should be going on every day in a regular classroom. I'm sorry, I'm not up here to preach, but that gets my ire up. That is what should be going on naturally, normally, and every single day, and does, in fact, in many classrooms. We, sh we don't need extra time for that. We just have to be trained to know that's how we teach. If I'm teaching social studies, I'm teaching skills and values and history. If I'm teaching math, I'm teaching that. If I'm teaching reading and writing, those are all the skills that are naturally being taught. That, that character development um, is actually a component of a number of expanded learning time schools, and it's a way of um, helping to change the school culture completely. I mean, expanded learning time is, is a redesign from a structural perspective, but it's also very much about changing the actual school culture um, and how kids feel about learning and being physically being in the school. So that's a very important component. Steve, yellow shirt. That's I'm uh, formerly among 
other things, uh, the director of the School Finance Reform Project, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And I was wondering, I didn't hear anybody talk about extended school years and whether or not there's research as to the impact on that as compared to extended school day. The, the report that John Bishop mentioned earlier on the New York City charter schools actually found um, a positive correlation between a longer school year and student achievement, but they also, again, acknowledged that um, a lot of the charters in New York City with a longer school year also had a longer school day. Um, so that's just one actual report that talks about that issue. But yeah, I just yeah. wanted to clarify that um, Senator Kennedy's bill being introduced this week will gives flexibility to the districts receiving funding to decide whether they're going to use the funding to expand the day or the year or even the week. Um, there's a lot of um, promising examples of school districts that use, you know, Saturday sessions to help improve student performance. I think the most common thing we see is the day as opposed to the year. There's um, a lot of resistance sometimes at the local level to bleeding into the summer. But also Senator Obama um, has a bill that, again, was enacted as part of the Competes Act that is specifically targeted to uh, creating summer sessions in high-poverty areas. Yeah, go on. Um. I, I just want to point out that um, Title I funding uh, is, if you, for school-wides, allows for all of this stuff right now. Uh, it's not that we're waiting, we need to wait around for somebody else's approval or anything else like that. Title I funding could be used for extended day, it's summer, um, Saturdays, preschool, pre a lot of different options than we have right now. Um, that are then, and most most districts aren't taking advantage of some of the flexibility that's already there with the funds that they already have. It's it's actually in Title One in the school improvement provisions. So if you're a school that has failed to meet AYP for two years in a row and you're in school improvement status, one of the explicit activities articulated in the law that a school could do to um, in their school improvement plan is expanding learning time. <laughs> the New York um, study is by Carolyn Hoxby. Brit? Uh, Fritz Edelstein, Public Private Action. Um, in all of this, we're trying to gain public support for change and improving our schools. Are we also then confusing the public? We have after school. With through 21st century community learning centers. We've now got into the lexicon out of school time, after school, expanded learning, other things like that. How do we form some kind of strategy? Because some of it overlaps with each other. When we talk about out of school time, it, people get confused. Is that after school or something else? Some of this, if it's partnerships, could be out of school time because it's an extended school day. How do we stop the confusion and get into a comprehensive strategy? That's a, that's a great question. Great question. That, that goes along with the fact that there just is not a com you know there's no it's common definition, which is very right. They're actually, I mean, they're different programs, um, but. I think you raise a very good point. What, what Elena actually found was that a lot, she was looking at schools that expanded time for all kids. But many of them also had after school programs on top of that, mm -hmm. and um, which is a, a, an optional, it's optional. And uh, 
usually there's not enough funding for all kids, and, and the kids choose. So the definitions are different. In terms of out-of-school time, um, I, I think that a lot of that has to do with place. The, uh, that would be what, the, what some folks, um, that where the learning takes place. I think those of us um, who are interested in expanded learning time think that as long as all kids are benefiting from it, that there are a number of places that um, museums she was talking about. Has also been considered, because it's not been formal as we've described it today, been that time before school but within the school setting or that extended day, which is not after school time, but the younger kids have, it, it's not daycare, but it's something in the extended day, but it's not part of a formal process the school's had. That's where I'm talking about in terms of the confusion. And one of the challenges before all of us is to try to figure it out because we have to define it or create a lexicon so it doesn't confuse the public. So you do get the financing that you need, et cetera. I'm not sure that we need to make a decision on which one it is that we're going to commit to. No, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think that, that the idea for you know, broadening amount of time that kids spend learning and whether that happens on the school campus or somewhere else and whether it happens between 9 and 3 or 10 and 5 or, you know, different days or different parts of the year or with even different sort of providers, um, that, that you're right. We don't have a word for that, but we, it may be the case that there's a lot of different models and they work for different people in different places. A lot of the after-school care is fee-based that parents are paying. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I think we are talking about public fund investment. Um, and, uh, and, and I know we have the organized school day, but then we do have big brothers, big sisters, and we have the scouts and things that, man, you, you know, put these programs together. They're out of school time. They may be housed in the building or in a library, and so we make them two pockets of educational pieces. All right, the woman in the red shirt, <laughs> blouse. Lisa <laughs> Roy, um, I, I wanted to know if you, because I haven't read the studies yet, have you looked at some of the issues like physical plant? Because when I've had discussions with school districts, those are, besides the union issues, those are some of the things that come up as well as managing the bus drivers. She means scheduling bus Right, yes, we have worked very closely with transportation just so we can do that. They know that we begin promptly at 8, 8.06, our students are tardy. We only allow four tardies a quarter. So unless your bus has a traffic issue or weather is the issue, they know that they need to be there. We also have worked through the years to make sure that it's a more prompt pickup because our children need to get home as quickly as well. A lot of work and logistics worked out. And, and that's one of the lessons learned from the Massachusetts experience is they, they are always talking about planning, planning, planning. It takes a lot of time because it really does, when you're moving to an expanded learning time schedule, it really does uh, mean that you have to talk to everybody, including, you know, whoever you contract to do your buses and you have to think about busing schedules and everything. Custodial and utilities exactly. and all these kinds of things. And and it's it's not that, um, I think 
if you anytime we're making a change, we're going to have to approach all these different sort of services when you talk about custodial and maintenance and utilities and stuff like that differently. And um, and we've set up somewhat bureaucratic arrangements with these departments that may need to be redefined. Um, and probably a right for redefinition, um, but in order to better go for the student outcome rather than you know be a slave to our old habits. Right, the woman in the black dress, and then leave behind her. Hi, my name is Jennifer Cohen from the New America Foundation. I'm curious about the difference between schools that started brand new with extended learning time versus schools that converted into extended learning time or districts, and if there's been any varying levels of success between the conversion schools versus the startup schools, or if you have any recommendations for how to smooth the transition, because as we've seen with other reforms, um, such as schools that have converted to charters versus brand new charters, that it, schools that convert run into a lot more difficulties than schools that start up brand new. Well, I would just say that based on the Mass, I think the Massachusetts experience has been exclusively uh, schools that convert, so there's no new schools and they've had great success there, so it can be done. Might be a little bit easier when you're starting fresh, like Gretchen's uh, experience. But some of the things they've said to us as important factors for smoothing the transition is one of the things I mentioned earlier, working with teachers and their and their, their organizations that represent them so they feel part of the process. Um, in Massachusetts, no teachers are required to participate. They they opt into the expanded day. So it's not it's not they weren't hired new. They were in the school. So no nobody's required to work longer hours. It's they and they you know they get compensated more for their additional time. So that was really key. Um, and um, also bringing in, I know they work hard at the local level to bring in parents and families. They have had uh, a lot of examples where there was resistance at the local level from parents and families, and they worked through that. And I think in every one of their schools now, they have very high parent satisfaction. You know, they survey parents and talk to parents, and parents once they see the additional benefits to their students and then it's not just more of the same, they get really excited about it. I think the costs are going to be greater if you convert than if you just redesign. I mean, because we're still going to be paying, you know, we have this idea of what the nine to three school day looks like and it's hard to uh, really convert that while you're adding on time. Um, and, and on that point, you know, we've, we have a history of using Title I funds during the school day we have specialists. I just visited a school in um, Fairfax County earlier this year that um, uses their Title Title One funds to um, pull kids out of classroom, come out of math and learn math in a smaller setting instead from a math specialist, and then go back. Well, if if that were structured so instead of during the school day, that specialist was providing instruction that lengthened the school day instead of sort of like this dual model, then it might be a more efficient use of resources and at the same time people aren't really willing to give it up because the you know the original math teacher likes the fact that six kids walk out the door for part of math class. So we, we, it's easier I think to, to redesign than it is to convert but we can't we don't always have that option we really don't so it may just be harder and a little uh, bit more expensive. Also in Massachusetts initiative there is forcing people to redesign to make those tough choices so it's it's they're very careful to make sure that people are rethinking how they do the schedule they can't just do add-ons and 
get a grant under this initiative. It's, you know, the thing that makes it different, getting back to Fritz's comment from after school, lots of these programs in Massachusetts use after school providers as their CBOs who provide enrichment activities. So it's, it's not an either or. The after school component is just more integrated into what's happening in the class. And to me, that's the difference between an after school program, which in many schools might be the right way to go, and an expanded learning time initiative, which is might use an after school provider, but it's a you have to rethink how you're doing things or it's not you might as well just do the after school. It's it's not an add on. It's gotta be a rethinking of how things are done. I guess did you have a comment, Lee, or no? Okay, so how about the guy in the red shirt? <laughs> Hi, um, Andrew Campbell from America's Promise Alliance. Um, I was curious, given the recent um, research that's been done on comparing the American educational system to overseas educational systems, um, particularly those countries in Southeast Asia and um, Northern Europe that are apparently doing an exceptional job of educating their youth, if there had been any research um, looking at the length of their day and if they used um, extended time or what kind of systems they were using? Um, some of the OECD data um, talks about the amount of time spent in school in other countries. In the U.S. Um, isn't necessarily at the top of that list. I mean, there are a significant number of um, countries that spend more time in school than, than we do, but it's also Again, that's that's some of that information is hard to decipher because things can be so different in other countries. It's not just um, how many minutes or hours per day a student is in a school, but it's how long are they um, in in instructional classes. Um, how much time does it take to transition from one classroom to another, or do the teachers transition? I mean, there's just so many different pieces of it that make it a little difficult to dissect that information um, and and learn more lessons from the from the from the data. Um, but there is, there is some um, OECD data that talks about that. And actually, I have a, a stat that my staff gave me that I forgot to use. I meant to use, uh, <laughs> saying that in China they spend thirty percent more time uh, learning and mastering subjects in schools. So um, uh, that I think is a pretty telling figure. They also um, tell me that in Europe and in many Asian countries. Uh, teachers are given as much as 44% more time for planning and preparing lessons than teachers in the United States. I think our average at the elementary level is 9%, and in the middle and high school level, it's 15%. So um, to the extent those those figures are accurate, I think that's a pretty stark contrast. And I, I think there's a whole K-12 spectrum. American students spend about a year less in school than students in, in other um European and Asian countries. The last two questions, the woman and then Arnie Faggy. Hello, my name is Johnny Gordon and I'm a consultant. Um, I was just wondering if there were any longitudinal studies that showed that the students who've been in extended learning over a period of time uh, have shown to do better beyond, say, that grade level, if it were, since we don't have a lot of st uh, studies for high school, what are the high schools saying about those students and how do they do long term, you know, once they reach high school and beyond? I think as Elena said earlier, there's, there's not a lot of longitudinal data to date, but, it, you know, in Massachusetts, 
they did do a study of the statewide initiative and the students did outperform their peers um, pretty much across the board. But I think we're, we're gonna need some more time with the reform being implemented to be able to get a sense of how much that gain translates over time. No, so the, the now, yes, yeah, because the the program hasn't been implemented long enough to see if they that carries through throughout high school. Um, a, a lot of those kids go on to, they work very carefully on placing their kids into a um, variety of high-performing high schools, um, but they do well, um, including a lot of private schools. Um, the research John was talking about may show, I answer the, your question, but Gretchen, you had an anecdote or two about your kids. Right, we have tracked our students uh, through the years, and as I said, this is going. To, we're going into the tenth year. Many of our students have passed all five parts of the OGT within the first two years of high school. Many of them have tested into uh, third year of that foreign language, uh, and this is not just in Ohio, but when they move to California, Georgia, Texas, places like that. So we do know that many of the students are carrying that on with them. Their reading levels are very high too. Maybe somebody should do a study of her kids because they've been tracking what happens to them. Arnie? Am I on? Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for bringing us together, first of all, Cindy, and recognizing <clears throat> this issue as uh, an important reform issue. And Carmel, I can't thank you enough for talking about community-based uh, partnerships. I think it's, it's absolutely a key. Can I raise uh, sort of a scale issue? Because we've been, uh, with the exception of Massachusetts, been focusing on primarily local school districts and some of the top urban school districts. When you took a look at Massachusetts, and of course whence comes Paul Revel, the National Center, Jennifer Davis, and a whole set of pieces, did you find that there was a, uh, uh, a higher correlation of scale, uh, of districts going to scale in Massachusetts because of state policy? Uh, and would you see that uh, if the seed works out and uh, and uh, we begin to begin, figure out this formula of, of community versus school-based programs and how to bring both together. Do you see that this is headed towards that school policy will give us the scale? Or, or do you see us staying on a school-by-school -school basis uh, for a while uh, to get this time thing straight? Well, I, I think Jennifer and Chris would say that they haven't reached scale yet in Massachusetts. So that they, but I think they feel very strongly and I that doing a state-based program can really help us get to scale more quickly, which is why our bill does provide the funding to states to do statewide initiatives. We do allow local school districts, though, to apply directly um, because, as you know, there's lots of school districts like New York City that are bigger than most states. So we felt that it would not be fair to not give the, uh, particularly larger school districts the opportunity to apply directly. But the, but the emphasis in the bill is on statewide initiatives for exactly that reason. Um, I, you know, I, I think the hope is that if we can get this implemented across the country and show people how well it can work, that we will be able to build consensus on the national level and hopefully on the state and local levels for greater investments in it. I don't know that the senator believes, though, that it's 
it's a reform that every single school needs to implement. You know, the, the school that my, stu my child goes to probably doesn't need an ex extended learning time initiative. The kids are doing really great there. It's a suburban school. Kids show up knowing how to read in my neighborhood. Although I was saying to Gretchen earlier, I, I would love it if they did, and I could have my child learning Spanish from uh, kindergarten on. So, you know, maybe we will get to a point where parents start demanding it for those reasons because they want those additional enrichment activities. But I think at this point, we feel like the most compelling area to focus this initiative on is in high poverty schools where kids need more time on tasks to, to master high standards in reading and math and history and science without sacrificing um, art and music and enrichment activities. So, it, you know, we, it, I don't think he feels like it's something that every school has to do. It shouldn't be imposed on people as a one-size-fits-all, but rather focus on where it seems to be needed the most. And I would add that um, state or federal policy really would help um, replicate the ELT model in a significantly larger number of schools. I, in doing my research just to identify these 300 initiatives in the first place, I must have spoken to two or three dozen schools that used to have expanded learning time but couldn't continue it for various reasons or wanted it but just didn't know how to get there. They didn't have enough resources or technical assistance or staffing to, to get there. It, this is an issue that schools and districts are, a strategy that schools and districts I think are, are almost clamor, clamoring for. They, they sometimes just need a little help, a little nudge, but I think if, if we had some type of a pilot program um, or state policy like what we have seen in Massachusetts, I think um, we would see a huge increase in the number of schools with ELT. Okay, we've, we've actually run over our time, but I want to thank our panelists. And I want to thank you for being interested. And I want to let you know that um, we at the center are going to continue to be studying this issue and promoting it. So we'll, we'll be having more gatherings like this um, to look at this issue from a variety of angles. So thanks a lot and stay interested and push for uh, expanding time. Mm -hmm.